Yeah, there was so much in the press at the time about how rapes would occur in different neighborhoods and they would sh- women would be heard shouting and nobody would do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Nobody would actively engage to try to help her or call 911. Or, so that was all <clears throat> in the press leading up to the accused. But I think it's also based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I don't really know the facts behind it, but I'm pretty sure that you're right about that. Yeah. It's an interesting... It's... Go ahead, Craig. I think it really opened up the conversation at the time about rape in general, which was something that obviously was something that's always existed, but something that people didn't really talk about. And just this whole idea that that women were who who were um, who were raped and then were then accused themselves of somehow deserving it because of the way they dressed or the way they behaved. That whole conversation really seemed to start around that time. I don't know if it was because of that movie or if I, I think I kind of think that it was. I seem to recall that it was that that it was sort of the beginning of that sort of conversation about about what rape really is and and how it's a, a bigger deal than than than, than the way it had been it sometimes been dismissed, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how, how, how long ago or how, how, how many decades old, old the old idea that, well, she was asking for it because of the way she acts and the way she dresses. I don't know how far back that goes, but this mm-hmm. is the first movie that I can ever recall that addressed that. Yeah. And another interesting thing about The Accused and a, and a couple of the other movies from 1988 is the relationship between the women is great between her, her uh, attorney, her, the lawyer, Kelly McGinnis, right? Kelly McGinnis, and, yeah. And, and as opposed to the really sort of despicable and backbiting, catfighting sort of relationships that we see in Dangerous Liaisons and Working Girl. Right, right. What I noticed also about this year, not to, to get off subject, but um, a lot of women that were strong actresses and really big box office draws kind of lost some of their clout this year, it seems like. Like um, Deborah Winger was in Betrayed. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer was in Tequila Sunrise. Um, Diane Keaton was in this movie called The Good Mother, which I actually really love. But none of them really did well to box office. And in fact, if you look at the top ten, there's not a single one that's that's led by a female. It's Rain Man, you know, Coming to America, Big, Twins, Die Hard, Naked Gun, Cocktail, Beetlejuice. So it really was, compared to last year that we just talked about, this is a really dramatic change in the power power in, in Hollywood. Suddenly, women movies aren't making money, and movies starring men are. You know, and it, it, I don't know, we'll have to check next year, check back in to see if, um, if that remains true during this era, but this year sort of seems to me like a marked difference from the previous year in terms of women. That's funny, because it's not as even as if the movies that feature men in 1988 were like action movies or anything. They were not. They weren't action movies. And they were there aren't any science fiction adventure movies this year either. So it's all buddy movies, like, you know? Mm. The movies that you mentioned are a lot of buddy movies between guy-guy relationships. Yeah. And actually, The Accused isn't that great of a movie. I don't think. Like, I've watched it a few times after. Mm-hmm. But but what stands out is how absolutely great Jodie Foster is. She is mm-hmm. so good in that. I mean, it really is actually better than Clarice Starling, even though she's great in that, too. But um, what she has to go through with that, apparently she um, she did the gang rape for five days. And she cried on cue so many times that her eyes got bloodshot. Her body was covered with bruises. Wow. And, you know, she really got into it in a you know, in a method acting kind of way. But she she plays that character so brilliantly and with so much vulnerability. 
you know, she's in a, she kind of believes in astrology. She's a little bit of a dreamer. She's not, you know, she, she has this horrible douchebag boyfriend. She barely makes her ends meet, you know. She's just going to go out and have some fun, drink, smoke a little pot. She gets, you know, drunk and starts dancing and, you know, sexy. She's, she's being sexy mm-hmm. and she's flirting with guys. And all of a sudden, one guy just decides that he's going to fuck her on the pinball mm-hmm. machine. And he does. And then... All these disgusting guys join in and they're clapping and each guy takes turns on top of her and nobody does anything. Not her friend, not it's the It's in manager. the back room, but there are two rooms to the bar and there's like an open door between them. It's not even like, it's not, you, they can't close the door so anybody can walk in and out and everyone up in the front of the bar is aware of what's going on in the back, right? They are, but they turn a blind eye. They yeah, figure, right. like you said, she deserved it because she was drunk and she was stoned and she was dressed up. You know. But, you know, she's not doing anything that, that anyone who doesn't do when they go out to party. She's not doing anything wrong at all, and she's not doing anything any more than any other guy was doing. It's just that she happens to be a, a little bit better at it. She's really a, really a great flirt, and, she's, and she looks fantastic, you know. So right. she's going, yeah. But there were also, um, it was also a, an economic um, disparity because she was a poor town girl, and they were all rich, rich college boys. And so when it came down to the court case, they were going to be protected and taken care of by really good lawyers. And she mm. had a pretty good lawyer, but her lawyer just wanted to make a deal and get out of it as quickly mm-hmm. as she could. And she, <clears throat> the lawyer herself, kind of blamed her, which is why she goes on the crusade to get the guys who were clapping because she makes she she pleads out this case to this mm. rich college kid who just gets off, you know. Mm-hmm. But it destroys this girl's life. Like, she cuts off all her hair. She gets really depressed. You know, she can't go outside. She becomes agoraphobic, and she's scared, and she's angry. And so the lawyer decides to do something about it, and then she, that's, that's when she prosecutes the. And that's the only time we get to see the rape, and we get to hear Jodie Foster tell the story. And that part of the movie is the most compelling part of it. I want to prosecute the others. The ones who cheered and clapped. The ones who made it happen. So you can make another deal? No. I'm not going to make any more deals. If I prosecute the others, the rapists will stay in jail for the full five years. And the rape will go on record. The deal won't matter because the rape will go on record. You really want to do that? Only if you help me. I need you to testify. I get to tell my story? Yes. You alone now? Yeah. I kicked him out. While I was laid up, he came back to pick up all of his stuff, you know. What's his is his, what's mine is his. Thank God he left me the radio. Anything I can do? Yeah. What? No deals. No deals. No deals. The and first they say part that, of it's that part a lot of the movie to the very end, so you're drawn into it before right. you realize what you're about to be subjected to, and it's like they spring it on you at the very last. And you're, by that time, you're so invested, you want to see it, but at the same time, you feel you feel repulsed by yourself for even watching it. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And she's great. She's great. 
Yeah, interesting that you said that it's not really that such a great movie. I just checked right now to see what else, if it was nominated for anything else by anybody else all year long, and it was like everything is Jodie Foster, Jodie Foster, Jodie Foster. That's the only recognition that the movie got at all. Yeah. The Academy, from BAFTA, from the Berlin Film Festival, Chicago Film Critics, the Italian, the Golden Globes, the National Board Review, it's all Jodie Foster. Mm -hmm. no, nobody else, not even screenplay or anything else. And that's the same with Working Girl, Melanie Griffith. Oh, no, that got a Best Picture nomination, actually. Um, yeah. Dangerous Liaisons also got a Best Picture. Um, not Dangerous Liaisons is the only Best Picture nominee of the year that I can really, that I don't have really mixed feelings about. Um, Working Girl is a sweet little movie. I used to like it a lot, but the more that I think about it and as time has gone by, I don't really like the way that the, either of the women are portrayed in that movie. And I, and I don't like what it says about... It, it purports to be like a feminist movie about a, femi about a woman, how, to, how women can survive in business, but I, I think it's, it's an ugly little message the way that it's presented. Hmm. To me, I just—it's uh, the kind of problem that you get when you have when you have guys uh, directing, writing, and producing a movie about feminists. They just don't get it. They turn—they yeah. turn them into, you know, a cat. It's like I said before, it's like a cat fight between uh, two two women. Yeah. Well, she's Sigourney Weaver is really funny. I thought in that part. Um, mm -hmm. And what I liked about this movie is that this is something you would never see today. You would never see a lead. Well, you do in this in this new movie called Short Term, and Zero Dark Thirty is another example of that, where the whole story turns on this woman's life, you know, and it turns on her choices and what she decides to do with her life. And the men are supporting players, Harrison Ford and mm. Alec Baldwin as her sleazebag boyfriend in a really early, funny Alec Baldwin role. Um... And it's, you know, it's got the Mike Nichols touches. It's a little, you know, it's a little, he has her vacuuming topless in a garter belt, you know. Well, both of them appear in their underwear. Sigourney Weaver and Miss Melanie Griffith both have their underwear scenes, which yeah. is like you didn't see that in Wall Street. You didn't get to see Michael Douglas running around in his underwear. You know, not that right. you want to, not that I would want to, but I mean that's the thing about showing women in business and men in business. They get they get depicted differently. In, sure. In well, it's very specifically a male gaze, a male point of view. Because mm -hmm. look yeah. at the best actor nominees: Rain Man, Dustin Hoffman, right. Gene Hackman, Mississippi Burning. He's fantastic in that. We have to talk about Mississippi Burning. Tom Hanks in Big, Edward James Olmos in Stand and Deliver, Max von Sydow in Pele, The Conqueror. These are all very important people, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And we have one important person in the Best Actress race, and that's Sigourney Weaver playing um, Diane Fossey in Gorillas in the Mist. But uh, Meryl Streep, you know, accused of murdering her baby. Working girl Melanie Griffith, kind of a, you know, small town girl makes good. Dangerous Liaisons, Glenn Close is a total female antihero. Machiavellian sort of like yeah. a villain, really. You know, it's a villainous role. It's not a, it's not a hero, heroine in any way. Right. Yeah, and again, with dangerous liaisons, is like it's like the the women have great roles, and, and I really you can really revel in the in the in the uh, in how rich the roles are. But in, in what it says about women is not a very pretty picture. I don't know. I think that um, I think when it says more about our response to women than it says about women, because I see her and and. Um, John Malkovich is basically being on the same page. They're behaving in the same way. They're doing the exact same things, except ultimately he gets away with it because he's a guy and she's, she's punished because she's a woman. Mm. But she's, the, she, to me, they're both equal characters to me otherwise. Yeah, I can see that. I see that. That's, a good, that's another good perspective. That's, that's another way it should be looking at it, I guess. 
I mean, I love it. I, Dangerous Liaisons. It probably would, it would have been my choice for Best Picture. I think it, it, it should have been Best Picture. It should have won, and it should have won a lot more across the board. And this is not your appointed night. That story you told me, how did it end? I'm not sure I know what you mean. Well, once this friend of yours had taken the advice of his lady friend, did she take him back? Am I to understand? The day after our last meeting, I broke with Madame de Tourvelle on the grounds that it was beyond my control. You didn't? I certainly did. But how wonderful of you. You kept telling me my reputation was in danger, but I think this may well turn out to be my most famous exploit. I believe it sets a new standard. Only one thing could possibly bring me greater glory. What's that? To win her back. You think you could? I don't see why not. I'll tell you why not. Because when one woman strikes at the heart of another, she seldom misses, and the wound is invariably fatal. Is that so? Oh, yes. I'm also inclined to see this as one of my greatest triumphs. There's nothing a woman enjoys so much as victory over another woman. Except you see, Vicomte, my victory wasn't over her. Of course it was. What do you mean? It was over you. You loved that woman, Vicomte. What's more, you still do. Quite desperately. If you hadn't been so ashamed of it, how could you have treated her so viciously? You couldn't bear even the vague possibility of being laughed at. And this has proved something I've always suspected. That vanity and happiness are incompatible. Whatever may or may not be the truth of these philosophical speculations, the fact remains it is now your turn to make a sacrifice. Is that so? Dunstany must go! Where? I have been more than patient with this little whim of yours, but enough is enough! One of the reasons why I never remarried, despite a quite bewildering range of offers, was the determination never again to be ordered around! I must therefore ask you to adopt a less marital tone of voice. She is ill, you know. I have made her ill for your sake. So the least you can do is get rid of that colorless thing. Haven't you had enough of bullying women for the time being? I see. I shall have to make myself very plain. I have come to spend the night. I shall not take it all kindly to being turned away. I am sorry. I've made other arrangements. Yes, I knew there was something. What? Donstany isn't coming. Not tonight. What do you mean? How do you know? I know because I've arranged for him to spend the night with Cecile. Come to think of it, he mentioned he was expected here. But when I put it to him that he would really have to make a choice, I must say he didn't hesitate. He's coming to see you tomorrow to explain and to offer you... Do I have this right? Yes, I think I do. His eternal friendship. As you said, he is entirely devoted to you. I see nothing, God. You're absolutely right. 
Shall we go up? Shall we? What? Go up. Unless you prefer this, if memory serves, rather purgatorial sofa. I think it's time you were leaving. No, I don't think so. We made an arrangement. I really don't think I can allow myself to be taken advantage of for a moment longer. Remember, I'm better at this than you are. Perhaps, but it is always the best swimmers who drown now. Yes or no? It's up to you, of course. I will merely confine myself to remarking that a no will be regarded as a declaration of war. A single word is all that's required. All right. War. It's been remade how many times now? They did Cruel Intentions, and there was another. Just the following year, I think they did another version called Valmont from the, Valmont's point of view. Right. There's and there was fantastic. already one before this, wasn't there? The French version, mm, the original the 60s, French yeah. version. And then, and it's, try to anybody who's listening or you two, uh, Tosh and Craig, check out if you can sometime. There's a Korean version that came out last year that was fantastic, just absolutely beautiful and and exquisitely you know produced and everything uh, from uh, with Asian actors in the same roles. Well, one of the problems with Dangerous Liaisons was that everybody said that Valmont was better mm. because Annette Bening, you know. And they were they were all basically kind of unknowns in in Valmont and in um, uh, Dangerous Liaisons was sort of the bigger Hollywood version. But my God, the acting is so great in that. Um, I don't think John Malkovich was even nominated. He no, wasn't. He wasn't. Which is yeah. horrifying. <laughs> I know it's a criminal thing that he wasn't nominated. I mean, I can't. The, the movie was really undervalued. I think that year. Yeah, it only it won screenplay because Christopher Hampton is a force to be reckoned with, and it was a good screenplay anyway. Mm. And, that one, I don't. I didn't. I, I don't. I don't remember wh- wh- how much. How much they were. Side by side, I know that Valmont was not nominated for anything until the following year, until until the next year when it was really eligible for the Oscars. I think it, it got a couple of nominations. Colin Firth is in that, right? Yeah. Colin, yeah. Yeah, but I directed it. Okay. Yeah. I don't think it's as good myself. I've seen them both, yeah. but it hasn't aged as well. Mm-hmm. But it had it had a certain cachet back then because of Milos Forman, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pfeiffer is particularly good in Dangerous Liaisons. But they're all three good. John Malkovich, I think, gives maybe his best performance or certainly one of his best performances as as the, the Valmont. And, and Glenn Close is spectacular. I mean, she's mm-hmm. just, you know, when she has to have her breakdown scene, she's so powerful. One of the problems with Glenn Close in her career has been that she plays these really frustratingly unlikable characters and and you know it's true that that John Malkovich gets off because he's the guy who falls in love you know he falls in love at the end and we have to you know he falls in love with Michelle Pfeiffer and the game's over because he fell in love and Glenn Close you know is painted again once again just like in Fatal Attraction the embittered rejected you know self-destructive viper with her attractions fading fast yeah. and, and and she realizes that whereas a guy he can get older and older and just gets more and more attractive as he gets older but at the end of of uh, dangerous liaisons you see that she realizes the game's about over for her regardless of whether she no matter how things have turned out yeah. she's losing her of what what would be seen at the time as her appeal and that's one thing that's that's different about valmont is that annette benning plays the glenn close character mm. and because she's not 
put in that category, uh, it's it's a little easier to buy the idea that um, Valmont would be so obsessed with her. I think with Dangerous Liaisons, you never really feel that. You know, you feel it's one-sided, like she's into him. But you never really feel that, despite Kinda. their game... Despite I guess what I just the script says, she must know some really spectacular tricks in bed. That's the only <laughs> way I could explain it to myself. That she must be just a really, really skilled courtesan. But he never you know? gets with her, though. That's yeah, the that's whole true. thing: yeah. is that she leaves herself as last. Mm-hmm. So it was a weird kind of, I think, a weird, unsatisfying movie for a lot of people for that reason. Mm-hmm. It's too bad. Unlike Rain Man, oh. which everybody freaking loved. Uh, which I can't. I can't. I tried to watch it. I can't watch that movie. I it can't just annoys either. me on so many levels. <laughs> <laughs> All the performances get, um, just bug me. It's just irritating more than charming. Well, I think that Rain Man was at the time when Tom Cruise really ruled the box office. Like, I mean, you can't believe it that the same guy now that we see that's Tom Cruise was who he was at this time in the 80s. It's amazing that he still kind of rules the box office. But to a back extent. then, you know, it was he, like... But back then, you're right. It, he was unstoppable because he yeah. was just coming off of Top Gun, right? Which was incredibly successful. In the same year as, as uh, Rain Man, wasn't, yeah. didn't Cocktail come out? Cocktail was yep. a huge hit. And right yeah. around this time is when the actors like Tom Cruise started making $100 million. I mean, not $100 million. That movie started making $100 million. So they started breaking in, you know insane records with their high salaries because they were worth it because someone like Tom Cruise could make Rain Man number one. And they're back in points. And that's and a pretty like that. big deal. Right. And then Julia Roberts comes along because this year is also the year of Mystic Pizza and everybody saw I know because I lived through all this crap. Mm. Julia Roberts comes along and she does Mystic Pizza. She's really popular. Then she does um, Sleeping with pretty the Enemy. Oh, okay. Right. Or wait, was it Pretty Woman first and then Sleeping with the Enemy, or did Sleeping with the mm, Enemy come first? I can't first? remember. I just spoke out of turn without even knowing the facts. But well, I at some Pretty point, she turned into yeah. somebody like Tom Cruise, and people started going, paying a lot of money to see her, just mm. to see her. And so then she became in the elite club of, of high, high box office draws. But that model of payment of a star, it, it kind of exists today, but it wasn't like how it was back, back in these days. And you can see... Just the fact that, that Rain Man is number one, what a big deal that would be, considering movies that are number one are usually like Star Wars or, you know. Yeah, because it's such an unlikely subject to be a number, to be, to attract that kind, that, those kind of audiences and those kind of numbers, right. that you wonder that the draw had to be Trump, Tom Cruise, right? Oh, sure. The tearjerker element and the, yeah. and the redemption of the, of the characters who are kind of, you know, fishy and sketchy acting and they have they have their you know comeuppance and they and they have a revelations and they turn out to be better people in the end and all that kind of bullshit <laughs> it's, a, it's a decent movie if it weren't so slick and calculated to be exactly what it is it just is way too i don't know there's no there's no rough edges to it it's just too slick and perfect dr bruner really likes you a lot and he's probably going to want to take you back with him you know yeah but I just want you to know that what I said about being on the road with you, I meant, you know, connecting. I like having you for my brother. I'm an excellent driver. Yes, sure. I like having you for my big brother. 
Yeah. But it's interesting because not only was Tom Cruise a huge star at this point, but this was one of the first movies that he made where you start taking him seriously as an actor. I mean, obviously he still was doing Cocktail and Top Gun and stuff like that, but he was starting to mix in semi-serious movies at this point. This was not long before Born on the Fourth of July and other things. And for a while there, he was doing the one for the box office and one for his art kind of thing, working with really great directors. I mean, the previous year he'd done uh, The Color of Money, which was sort of the first real clue to people, I think, that he was somebody to be taken seriously. Yeah, if, if Martin Scorsese hired you in the first place, you know that he sees something in you that, that other people have not given you credit for previously. Yeah. Right? Well, it's a win-win for directors like that. Like, he works with Leo now because he knows that Leo will bring mm-hmm. them in. He also mm-hmm. likes him as an actor, but there's no denying mm-hmm. that they pick. they try to pick the ones who will bring people to see the movie. And they, but uh, they also realize that they need to have a certain degree of acting chops, too. And that, I think that that's what you're saying, Craig, is that Tom Cruise was really showing at this stage of his career that he really had the chops to take on some, some um, meteor roles. Yeah, he was more than just a hunky, you know, mm-hmm. A-list star. He was he was trying to be a serious actor and and being successful at it. I think he's he's done some really good work. It's easy to forget when you look at at the Top Guns and the Cocktails and the Days of Thunder of the world. But he's he's really challenged himself when he's, when he's it's, given it's, that opportunity. It's funny how, how 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 infrequently the guys have been able to catch a break with an Oscar nomination. You know, because even for Rain Man, he's like you know passed over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also. Yeah, Tom Cruise setting up his own Oscar story. And, and another person popping in here is Jeff Bridges, who starred in um, Tucker, The Man in His Dream, and was not nominated, even though at the time he was there was a lot of buzz. And, and this, is, this is the point, really, in um, Jeff Bridges' career where people start to think he's being overlooked, you know, mm-hmm. repeatedly, and he's an actor who deserves recognition. It took him a really long time. He had to totally walk the walk and whore himself out on the red carpet, but he finally won for Crazy Heart. Mm-hmm. That was a tough win, you know, for for um, Jeff Bridges. Took him a long. It was time. a tough win because it was a tough year of competition that year too. Everyone was talking earlier in the year. They were talking about Colin Firth in a single man, and and Weinstein even promised Colin Firth that he was going to get the Oscar for him, you know, for that. And then and then out of nowhere, at the very end of the year, uh, Crazy Heart sweeps in. Well, he paid he paid everybody back when King's Speech. Went. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Um, the Accidental Tourist is a weird movie to get a Best Picture nomination, and I think it only got in because Lawrence Kasdan directed it, um, and and G- Gina Davis ended up winning Best Supporting Actress. So obviously, people really liked it. I find myself returning to that movie a lot, just personally, because there's a lot of it I really love. You know, I love I the book; see- is incredible. The the book, and but but also. Um, the 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 weird the thing I love about Accidental Tourist is the relationship with Gina Davis is is fine it's a, it's okay it's typical Oscar kind of thing you know um, kind of promiscuous 
you know, rescuer woman who helps prop the man up. It's very typical. Oscar Not so much woman. promiscuous as just sort of uh, aggressive. Easy, yeah. loose. Yeah, yeah easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she's, she's like she's me. Really aggressively uh, hits on him. She she doesn't yeah. give up. She sees she, what she, she wants aggressively, and she pursues him. And she's not good enough for him. But the great thing about that movie is the family. And if you ever read the book, the stuff about the family is so funny because that's really what that story is about, his weird family and mm-hmm. breaking free from their weirdness, you know, how they have these this you know bizarre pet. They all live together, all the brothers and sisters, none of them married. And the, the sister Rose, um, she takes care of her brothers. And they all kind of find themselves back in the house that they could be taken care of by Rose. And then Bill Pullman comes in and and courts Rose and falls madly in love with her. And, you know, he gets her out of the house for a while to be his secretary just so he can woo her and have her marry him and everything. And, well, no, no, the secretary stuff comes later. And so all the misfit brothers are sort of like at a loss, like, what are we going to do now without our sister? Yeah, they want Rose back. (laughs) I could see where it would be right in your wheelhouse because, you know, what it reminds me of It's like a combination of Terms of Endearment and and Hannah and Her Sisters. It's like a blend of those kinds of movies. It's a family, all the family entanglements in a a home situation. It's really, uh, they made several of those movies in the the early and mid-80s that that are all the same type. And even though they have sort of a, a little bit of a tinge of yuppie angst about them, that's okay yeah. with me because it's handled so so elegantly. Well, there's also a, a reunion of Lawrence Kasdan, Bill Hurt, and Kathleen Turner, who last worked together all in, in in Body Heat in a beautiful way. Well, of course, totally overlooked by the Oscars, but everybody, but it was gaining notoriety back then. Everybody remembered it as being a great movie, so they were all reunited again for this. And Kathleen Turner plays his very cool, kind of perfect wife. She's she's excellent in the part. And, you know, he thinks that he's marrying out of his weird, crazy family. He thinks that he can just marry the beautiful woman, have the beautiful house, and suddenly they're, quote-unquote, the normal ones. But like in ordinary people, something happens, that their son dies. And that it's changes a tragedy, everything. and they deal with it in different ways, and she's no longer, she can't. She wants to get out because she feels like that he can't. Right. He's not giving her what she needs in order to, to move, out, move away from the tragedy. Store. Is it safe? Have to try it sooner or later. Yeah. Too pink. What are you doing for dinner tomorrow night? For dinner? Come and eat at my house. Come on, it'll be fun. Um. Just for dinner, you and me and Alexander. Uh, 6 o'clock. It's 510 21st Street. Know what that is? Well, I don't believe I'm free then. Think it over a while. Come on, Vinny. Good job. How old did you say Alexander was? He's seven. Have you thought? Hmm? Have you given any thought to coming to dinner? Oh, I... Could come. It's 
only for dinner. What else would it be for? Here he is. Hi, sweetie. Here's your appointment. Who wants Alexander, this is Macon. Can you say hi? You're pretty young to be at the doctor's without your mother. He's used to it because he had to go so often. He's got these allergies. I see. He's allergic to shellfish, milk, eggs, and most vegetables. We think he may be allergic to air. Whenever he's outside a long time, he gets these bumps on any uncovered parts of his body. And if a bee ever stings him and he hasn't had his shots, he could be dead in half an hour. I've got a double barrel shotgun, and I'm aiming at exactly where your head is. It's Macon.
Every day I tell myself it's time to be getting over this. I, I know that people expect it of me. But if anything, I'm getting worse. The first year was like a bad dream. I was cleared his bedroom door in the morning before I remembered he wasn't there to be wakened. Dude, the second year is real. Stopped going to his door. I've sometimes let a whole day pass by. Without thinking about about I believe Sarah thinks I could have prevented what happened somehow. She's so used to my arranging her life. Now I'm far from everyone. friends anymore and everyone looks trivial and foolish not related to me and then when she sees him with Gina Davis she wants him back again and then Gina Davis feels she really makes a major play by chasing him down and following him to the movie kind of falls a little bit apart when he goes to Paris Believe it or not, he actually goes to Paris. His back goes out, and Gina Davis shows up, and and it's a really sweet ending. Which, in case people haven't seen it, it has a really wonderful ending. And for once, the you know the the girl who doesn't deserve the guy actually gets the guy. One one of those movies too, where Gina Davis is in so much of the movie, she really kind of owns the movie, but she's still nominated in supporting actress because she was an ingenue. She was young and pretty yeah. at the time and didn't have much of a career behind her, so they put her in the supporting category, even though really she's the lead female. Right, and she proves her, herself um, worthy all through her career coming after this, after winning mm-hmm. her Oscar. She's one actress where winning that Oscar really did, what really was a deposit on a, on a much better career later great role for her and Lawrence Kasdan really knows how to film her really I mean all I mean it's all leg you know the movie's just all about her legs lips and legs that's, <laughs> yeah, right you know and she looks just fabulous and then we have I had this... a huge crush on her at the time because of uh, Tootsie and also she was in a TV show called Buffalo Bill that Dabby, Dabney Coleman was in oh yeah and so I already had the hots for her when this movie came <laughs> out so I've always had a really strong affection for this movie and it's really spoke to me at the time in terms of a character who who is sort of learning to move out of his comfort zone and to stop being being an observer mm-hmm. and start living life instead of instead of just being sort of on the sidelines lessons that I wish that I had paid more attention to back in in 1989 and and then the subsequent (laughs) years came back it's lessons that I knew were right but I didn't ever really follow and uh, it's another one of those movies that I'm surprised that I always really liked and I'm surprised to find out that the cool kids don't think it's so cool anymore I don't know if they ever did. I mean, it was. I think it was considered at the time. It, it was downgraded a little bit. I always felt a little bit embarrassed for loving it as much as I did, just because it's. I think it's sexism. I think well, I always say that, but it just seems like since it's written by a woman, it's kind of about women and and. Um, uh, the book, yeah, the book was a, it was a big bestseller by Ann Tyler. I don't I think book. a guy adapted the screenplay, but then I see what your point is from a woman's point of view, definitely. A, a guy could not have written that story. Well, you know, think. Up in the Air borrows a lot from this movie. You know, exactly. I was going to say the same thing. It's yeah. an antecedent. It was an ancestor of Up in the Air, wasn't it? Yeah, so much. because his, so much better. his whole thing is about 
writing travel. It's so ironic. It's like um, it's like Jack Nicholson writing romance and as good as it gets. He's he's a total like a guy who who's afraid of everything. He's afraid of life. Um, and he thinks, and even when his wife leaves him and his son is dead, he he thinks of ways to live his life easier. Like it always cracks me up that part where he like invents a way to do his laundry faster and quicker. But all <laughs> these funny little life um, life happenings things you know disrupt his his safety zones and like the dog who who makes him break his leg, the mm-hmm. cute little corgi dog who makes him break his leg, and and Gina Davis showing up on the scene and these are things that like he he writes on how to avoid like you get on an airplane, you put your headphones in or whatever. Or, mm-hmm. I don't know if he the, says be, the beginning of, of an uh, accidental tourist where he's talking about how to pack a suitcase is so much like the beginning of up in the air with yeah. the same scene about right. how to pack your suitcase efficiently in order to make it through the airport with a minimum, you know, uh, fuss yeah. and bother. Right. It's identical. It's a, it, I had forgotten really how much, this, yeah. how similar they are. Well, he thinks that he can, he reminds me of a friend of mine, actually. He thinks that he can, he can wrangle life. And and nothing bad's ever going to happen to him as long as you follow these certain rules, you know. But the movie just lays out and the book lays out so beautifully how that's really impossible. You know, life is kind of about the disruptions. It's you can our- just step into a shop asking about a place to board your dog and someone enters your life totally unexpected and they latch onto you and you can't really shake them. You can't get rid of them and they change your life just by as, uh, the, hap- the uh, happenstance and, and chance meetings that you run across in your life. Yeah, and she has a great scene in that. Gina Davis, her Oscar winning scene actually is when she confronts him and she says, you know, you think I'm just this, you know, play thing. You can play with me whenever you want and that it, nothing I, you know, it's never about what I want. It's always about what you want, you know, and, and she, and then he leaves. Even the most disciplined professional traveler may sometimes stumble across that unexpected item he feels he simply must take home. That's fine, as long as one is willing to accept the inconvenience and awkwardness that come with each additional piece of baggage. I don't think Alexander's getting a proper education. No, he's okay. I asked him to figure what change they'd give back when we bought the milk today, and he didn't have the faintest idea. He didn't even know he'd have to subtract. Well, he's only in second grade. I think you ought to switch to a private school. Private schools cost money. So I'll pay. 
What are you saying? Pardon? What are you saying, Macon? Are you saying you're committed? Well, that's not really the point. Alexander's got 10 more years of school ahead of him. Are you saying you'll be around for all 10 years? I can't just put him in a private school and take him out again on every passing whim of yours. Just tell me this. Do you picture us getting married sometime? I mean, when your divorce comes through? Ariel, marriage is... I don't know. You don't, do you? You don't know what you want. One minute you like me, and the next you don't. One minute you're ashamed to be seen with me, and the next you think I'm the best thing that ever happened to you. You think you can just go along like this? No plans? Maybe tomorrow you'll be here, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll just go on back to Sarah. All I'm saying is... All I'm saying is, take care of what you promised my son. Don't go making him any promises you don't intend to keep. But I just want him to learn how to subtract. Be honest. Why can't we get married in the fall? You'd be separated a year then, Macon. Hey, Muriel, please. I'm not ready for this. I don't think I ever will be. I don't think marriage ought to be as common as it is. I really believe it ought to be the exception to the rule. Well, like perfect couples could marry, maybe, but... <laughs> Who's the perfect couple? You and Sarah, I suppose. No, no. You are so selfish. You are so self-centered. You have all these fancy reasons for never doing a single thing I want. And she's got this sad little sick son and... You know, the juxtaposition of this perfect family and their perfect son dying, and then Gina Davis with her sweet little barely surviving little son who she loves to death, you know, and Mm -hmm. how she has to borrow from all of her friends to get money just to go, and and all these people babysitting to take care of her kid just so she can put it all on the line and go to Paris and chase down this guy that she loves, you know? Mm -hmm. It's so moving to me. It really is. When do you see characters like that anymore, you know, written like that? Her, um, her outfits, her costumes are great too. That it's, I mean, it really, they they missed the boat by not giving it an, an Oscar nomination for best costumes because her her um, wardrobe is amazing. Yeah. Big difference between this movie and Up in the Air is that this was made by an actual adult who's actually lived life and and suffered some slings and arrows in the world instead of this obnoxious twerp who who thinks who thinks he knows what being an adult is all about. Yeah, you know, because everyone in Up in the Air, the, all the characters in Up in the Air are all obnoxious twerps. You know, but Lawrence Kasdan is is a really good person with a good heart and a really deep. Uh, under, uh, he's a humanist, and so all of his characters are likable. Right. Even though they're eccentric and strange and, you know, kind of oddballs and misfits, they're very likable. He's drawing from real human experience rather than this phony writerly conceit about what life is really like. Right. And Up in the Air doesn't really 
have anywhere to go except let's appreciate the poor couple. It doesn't really have a good... Um, Accidental Tourist is so thoroughly written. You know, every character mm-hmm. has a backstory and a future. And, I mean, you just know these people. Think of all that's in that movie. There's the Gina Davis and her son. There's William Hurt recovering from the death of his son and his divorce. There's William Hurt's weird family. There's Bill Pullman, you know. Mm-hmm. All these little streams that come off of the main river of this story are, are all worth investing in. And nowadays, with the critics the way they are, they'd be like, you know, movie falls apart because why don't we care about this guy that guy and you know stick to the story so I mean, lacks, even the little focus. the little the little dog lacks is fascinating focus. the little dog is so much more fascinating than the dog and the artist you know <laughs> the little dog and the artist can do like three tricks he can fall over and tourist is amazing <laughs> Oh, the dog and the accidental tourist is to me the cutest cinema dog ever oh, in all he's cinema amazing. history. He's incredible. <laughs> His little ears. You kind of feel sorry for him. He got yanked around by that choker collar so much throughout the movie. <laughs> she's <laughs> great, though. Gina Davis is so funny as she's disciplining that dog, which is just like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. You didn't even notice my my uh, profile picture that I'm using for on Skype this week. It's her. It's, it's, it's her scolding the dog. She's making that hissing sound looking at the dog. That's my profile. Oh, no. I didn't see. I have to look. That's so cute. Let me see. Oh, yeah. I love that. I'm glad you mentioned it. Oh, <laughs> we my God. We both picked up on that. You know, that kind of actress, though, as much as I love her and I love the character and I love the costumes, I think she's great. But that sort of style, that's like Mercedes rule in The Fisher. King, that kind of character is so comforting to Oscar voters. Like they just seem to love the, you know, the mistress kind of, you know, small town girl with no education who dresses kind of sexy and is very emotional and giving. And it's a Woody Allen character. It's a it's trope. The kind of character Woody Allen right. <laughs> It works in this, though, because it's Gina Davis. I think it, with mm-hmm. any other actress, you know, it, it would just feel overly familiar, but she makes yeah. it unique. And she's borderline, and she's a borderline annoying to me. I will admit, I do kind of, I'm, I'm always glad when I, she finally leaves the scene, you know, when she finally <laughs> walks away, because I've just about had enough of her. She's so aggressively perky and, and optimistic and just, you know, in your face. But So I'm really, I can, I, it was really good pacing, because just as I'm about to get sick of her, she, she walks away. She's so cute, though, with those big lips and the dimples and her cute smile. I mean, she's a, just adorable. That woman. Just sexy as heck, too. I mean, yeah. just amazingly sexy. Yeah. And, yeah. She's great in Thelma and Louise, too, which I think is her best performance. So I can't wait to talk about that year. And that brings us to Mississippi Burning, which is probably the most... Well, okay, we have one more film to talk about before we get to the most controversial film of this Oscar year. It is Last Temptation of Christ, which... It's so funny to look back uh, on the controversies of the time because even Fish Called Wanda had a controversy in that the ASPCA were angry at them for for making fun of the death of the animals in the movie. <laughs> so, uh-huh. Did they really? Gosh, yeah. how, how touchy. I mean, good grief. Have a sense of humor. That's one of the funniest movies. I've, it really is. Isn't it one of the funniest movies of all time? It really is. Emma and I watched it many, many times, and I know... I literally know that movie from beginning to end, every single line of it. 
it's one of my all-time favorites. If I ever meet people who know that movie, you know, it's it's like it's a rare a rare occurrence. And if you meet someone who hasn't seen it, then it's a great one to recommend because they'll think so highly of you. But after yeah. they see it, they'll think that you've got really good taste after you recommend that movie to them to <laughs> see it for the first time. Well, some people so it's don't. Such a pleasure. Yeah, some people don't connect with it. They don't get it. They don't see why it's so funny. And then and then hmm. once you do connect with it, like my daughter loves it. She thinks it's so hmm. so funny. It's a perfect litmus test for what kinds of people you want to have in your life. If they don't like a fish called Wanda, then you don't need to waste any time with them. You can just <laughs> write them off the Christmas card list right away. This is another one of those years when you have uh, the, the director of Best Picture categories were so split that they, were, yeah. they, they only matched three for three, and there were two, two outliers, and, and one of them was... Uh, um, uh, this guy's Charles Crichton for A Fish Called Wanda was nominated for Best Director. And as you mentioned just a minute ago, Martin Scorsese for The Last mm-hmm. Temptation of Christ, which was a fantastically, beautifully directed movie, but it was way too controversial to ever make it into the Best Picture yeah. arena. I love that the directors are sometimes rebellious that way. Mm-hmm. Um, that is really true. That movie was very, were- very controversial. They were like that more, I think, in the past. The director's branch of the Academy w- took more chances to appreciate and respect directors, uh, directors, what the directors were trying to do. Guys like David Lynch and Scorsese, when they would make movies that couldn't be nominated for Best Picture, the director still made sure that they got the directors got credit. They don't do that so much anymore. They, 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 it seems like they want to fall in line more. Yeah. Part of that is because they changed the date and everything happens so fast now in the awards race that... There really isn't time for people to sit around and, and rethink their choices. It's sort of like, okay, Argo, fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're giving uh, Ang Lee the Best Director you know, Award last year showed you how things can shift. Like, given maybe two more weeks, three more weeks of Oscar voting, who knows? Life of Pi might have won Best Picture, you know? It could if have there had been more room. time. You just never know. But... But I, Last Temptation of Christ was controversial because, of course, I mean, just the title is going to, is going to get it under the skin of fundamentalist Christians because right. they don't like to think that Christ could be tempted, you know, or that right. or even though it's, I know that it's part of the biblical story and everything, it's still just the idea that here you have the guy who wrote Taxi Driver writing a movie about Jesus. It's just, it's going to rub people the wrong way. Yeah. The Catholic Church um, banded or tried to get it banned in, in Italy. I think that it had a lot, a lot of trouble getting... Uh, getting getting raided in a lot of countries around the world because it was considered so controversial. In the UK, they said they they gave it the most adult rating, but they but they specified that you had to come in from the very beginning of the movie. You couldn't be admitted into the theater after the first five minutes because there's that disclaimer at the beginning. They say be sure to remember this is a fictional account. This is not from the gospel. This is a this is a fictional account speculating about the conflict between the human and divine side of Jesus, and this doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. So be aware of that. And so if you didn't see that disclaimer, the UK um, um, film ratings board didn't want you to see the movie at all. Yeah, and and we should say why because um, uh, Barbara Hershey played Mary Magdalene, sexy, you know, um, having. I, I think in the movie there's like there is an either an insinuation or a direct relationship between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Mm-hmm. He yeah. fantasizes about her when he's when he's when he's having his hallucinations. I think. I don't think that they ever implied that something really did happen, but he he was obviously thinking about it. 
you know, and straight to script, I didn't realize this uh, until I just read about it this past week. I was doing a little bit of research. In Paul Schrader's original screenplay, there's a scene where Jesus uh, kisses John the Baptist on the lips. And in the description of the kiss, uh, uh, Jesus is having a thought. And he says something like, his tongue was like a hot coal in my mouth. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? Oh, my God. Right, like right. A, you know, they, they did cut that out of the movie, and Schrader has said sub, uh, since then he sort of did that in a way to just sort of punch Scorsese's buttons to see what, what, what he would, how he would react to that. He didn't ever expect it to be in the movie, but it was in the script. Wow. So. I, I love that movie. It's not um, a Scorsese movie that I watch a lot because it's pretty intense, but I love Very that personal. He's, yeah, personal is a good word. And I think it's one of his best. It's like you, it's not one that I'm going to sit down and watch every time. And I actually avoided it for years and years and years. Because just to be honest with you, I didn't have any interest in sitting down to watch a movie about Jesus. But it's more about Scorsese and more about his feelings about Jesus and Christianity and Catholicism and all of that. And it, it once I once I knew more about his biography and his upbringing and how and, and how important of a story it was to him, it be, it, it took on a lot more meaning to me. He tries. It, it's one of his more remarkable films. And he's, he was trying to get it made for 15 years. He put he invested his all this time and energy in getting the rights to the novel by Nikos uh, Kazantzakis, uh, mm-hmm. a guy who was also had really complex feelings about his about trying to. Find his own, discover and 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 redefine his own feelings about religion and about Jesus, and um, meant a lot to him. The story I had trouble myself. Get I tried to watch it a lot of times in the past, and I can never at first in the first ten or fifteen or twenty minutes ever get past the accents because right. you've got all of these people in Jerusalem speaking like New Yorkers. Harvey Keitel plays Judas with a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> yeah, they like they also like Tony Curtis and Spartacus. Oh, <laughs> or Edward, Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> Yeah. In, the, in the Ten Commandments, <laughs> so it took me. A, I had to. You have to just get past that, and and also it's the the style of language doesn't doesn't adhere to the way that we're uh, that we've been accustomed to to seeing people in ancient Greece or Rome speak. You know, right. the sort of stylized, formalized language. It's more. Um, contemporary idiom. It's, it's right. common everyday language, the way we speak now. But once you get past that, you forget about it. You don't notice it anymore. Right. You don't. But it's it's <clears throat> it's just so beautiful to watch. You know, Barbara Hershey is so sexy. <laughs> and, you know, there are a lot of people that do believe that she was his wife, you know. I oh, mean, yeah. it's, it's not. And that, that it was probably expunged from from earlier versions of the story by by monks and and the King James people and everybody. They sort of obliterated all that part out of the Bible because they they couldn't they couldn't handle it. They couldn't deal with it. Right. But there's there's apocryphal um, books of the Bible that I think that that maybe touch on that a little more explicitly. Well, and it addresses the idea that Jesus was a man before he was the Son of God. I mean, he was always the Son of God, but for most of his life, he was just a guy. And mm-hmm. the the tension between between earthly human flaws and and the divine, which is something that anybody who approaches the divine deals with on a regular basis. Uh-huh. I really like too that they that they they're not Scorsese was not shy about the fact of portraying Jesus as if he might even appear to other people to be almost mentally ill that he might be delusional and he might be um, um, almost possessed or something and because of the way he acted and it was having such a struggle inside of his head with what the two sides of himself that he knew existed to the to other people outside of him they might have looked at him like he was you know losing his mind or something. 
anybody who's a, a Christian who would reject that movie because it doesn't fit their particular carved in stone beliefs about what Jesus was is a coward. <laughs> That's all and there is to it. This, this is a movie that should appeal to both both people who are not spiritual and people who are people that should be open minded enough and confident enough in their beliefs that they can they can explore different interpretations. Mm-hmm. And it's, they could learn so much from it, really, if they would give it a chance. Yeah. Uh, people, laymen and, and religious people alike, could could find so much so much um, thought provoking ideas presented in this movie. And there are just some directors: Martin Scorsese, David Lynch, uh, Robert Altman, pa- Paul Thomas Anderson, Cohen's. You know, they're just they're just operating at a different level, and mm-hmm. they're going they're they're taking such enormous risks with their work that weirdly enough it though it wasn't nominated last temptation of christ stands out this year as one of the major films you know mm-hmm. it really does mm-hmm. and so the directors totally got it right i'm not saying i don't like all five of the best picture nominees because though i think it's kind of a boring and tepid year i've returned to all five of them again and again and watched them you know mm-hmm. um also uh, Oh, go ahead. Somebody was going to say something. I was just going to say, I think any one of the nominees from the year we're talking about now is better than a handful of the recent winners. I would totally agree with that. It's They're all so much more ambitious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's, uh, movies lately almost like uh, try to replicate some of the things that they were trying to do in the 80s. Well, you can look at Working Girl and say, well, that's really just uh, Devil Wears Prada. It's the same. Devil Wears Prada is the same story. Right. Only not as good. Only not 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 nearly as funny and not as not as rich and not as not as detailed. Right. What we're missing nowadays, and I think a lot of it has to do with the critics, frankly, um, is things are just too flat because everybody kind of plays it safe, and so they don't really dive into depth with characters anymore. The writing doesn't matter as much. What matters in the writing is the snappy dialogue, like Argo. You mm-hmm. know that it moves and then it's. But in Argo, the, so this, many of the, the characters were just one-dimensional i mean none of these movies we're looking at here and the five from working girl you won't find a single flat character the girlfriend is valeria golino who's like a little who's like a firecracker you know she Mm -hmm. what an interesting you know weird kind of supporting girlfriend you'd never see a character like that now and I mean, I wish that Argo had snappy dialogue. What Argo has, instead of snappy dialogue, is one-line punchlines. <laughs> just gonna just wisecracks. Argo is just a string of wisecracks. <laughs> we, we've got to rename this podcast, Argo, Fuck Yourself. <laughs> so and you two silver linings. But the complexity and realism of the dialogue oh. in movies like Accidental Tourist is really astonishing. You just don't see that kind of writing very much anymore at all they're movies made for adults they're not pandering to infants right (laughs) exactly (laughs) so um that year i I singled out a few movies that are worth talking about some you know that really just you know just take these pull me back to this time in my life because they they meant so much to me which was unbearable lightness of being one of my all-time favorite films should have been featured in the oscar race was not Mm -hmm. um The directed by Philip Kaufman, starring Juliette Binoche, Daniel Day-Lewis, and Lena Olin. Uh, maybe she was a supporting actress uh, nominee, but boy, was that a great movie. I highly recommend people go see that. Talk about a mature and a movie for adults and grown-up themes and really thought-provoking. And, and if you're not a grown-up, you're not going to get that movie at all. No, and yeah. Juliette Binoche is incredible in it. I don't know how it was that she didn't get any 
recognition for that acting. People were freaked out by the sex. I think it has a lot of explicit sex. He's he's a womanizer uh, who falls in love with a woman who wants him to be faithful. But they stay together, and uh, you know, there's like there's like a revolution in Prague, right? That's happening mm-hmm. at the same time. It's, it's a difficult movie politically. If you're not familiar with the political situation, you could be a little bit lost. It's a long movie, isn't it? It isn't yeah. like three hours long or something. So I think it was a difficult set for people. And I think it was just what I think it was over people's heads, a lot over the heads of a lot of people. Written by Milan Kundera, the book it really mm-hmm. is about mortality. It really is about that title is a beautiful title, and it really, to me, just absolutely defines what life is all about you know it is the unbearable lightness of being they're just you know one minute you're you know dancing happily at a pub with the woman you love and you feel like you've got life all worked out and the next minute somebody's head-on collision kills you on the road mm. down some country yeah. road or the hammer comes down politically and your whole country changes underneath your feet and you're you're suddenly you know in fear for your life yeah so it, it gets back to that tie saying you were talking about, don't overthink things because, you know, mm-hmm. it's light. Life is light. And and the character Teresa the, that Juliette Binoche plays is heavy. You know, she's considered not literally heavy, but mm-hmm. she takes life very seriously. And, and the film is kind of saying, what's the point of doing that, really? Um, Dead Ringers, David Cronenberg with uh, Jeremy Irons, brilliant film that came out that year. Another Woman is one of Woody Allen's most under-recognized films, I think, of his his canon. It's a really, really great movie featuring a, a great lead performance by Jenna Rollins. It's a lot like Blue Jasmine, it reminds me of. It has an incredible, tender love scene uh, Love, you know, relationship between generals and Gene Hackman of all people, who plays her, her long lost, um, you know, the, the man that she always thinks about when she looks back on her life and what she regrets, which is not giving into her heart. And it is incredible the way he plays with structure in that movie. It is like Blue Jasmine in that way. Sandy Dennis um, plays the ex-wife, and half the time you're in a play, and half the time you're in real life. And Jetta Rollins is a you know, um, next has an office next door to a therapist's office, and she's she's overhearing and eavesdropping on Mia Farrow, who's pregnant, telling her therapist all these stories, and and it's kind of the parallel lives of these two women. It's a beautiful movie, really good. Didn't this is the best? I'm sorry, here I am interrupting you. I'm about to say this is the best way to keep me from interrupting you to talk about a movie that I haven't seen. So I just have to listen to you. I can't jump in. God, Ryan, you got to see it. Promise me you'll watch that movie. I will, for okay. sure. I will now. Yeah. All right, and then um, Frantic, Roman Polanski. I mean, that was the shit, and it still is. I love going back to that movie with beautiful Emmanuel Seigne as the femme fatale and uh, Harrison Ford. Polanski doing a direct homage to Hitchcock style. Oh, yeah. Hitchcock style movie. One of my favorite Polanski movies is Frantic. It's so good. Another movie made for adults. Yeah. Oh, it's just great. Frantic. If you Listeners, if you've not seen it, go rush out and see it immediately. It's great. Uh, and They Live by John Carpenter, which is a really funny, you know, sci-fi movie again carpenter fans love it but if most people have never heard of it i'm you know i'm a, i'm an outlier on that one i love john carpenter but i've never been able to stand they live and it's because i hate i hate professional wrestling and i hate <laughs> rowdy roddy piper and I, and I, I was just waiting for you to say roddy roddy piper out loud <laughs> can't stand that guy and the movie just bugs it's a great sci-fi idea and it sort of has some funny stuff to it but he's just terrible he's the worst <laughs> 
can't stand him. We should mention Who Framed Roger Rabbit. One of oh, my, yeah. I think I would have nominated be- Who Framed Roger Rabbit for Best Picture. I really love that movie. I think, I think it, it's that, extraordinarily creative, and, and there's more creative. You know, as an as an homage to to Hollywood, there's there's more creativity and ima- visual imagination in Who Framed Roger Rabbit than there is in the, in the entirety of The Artist. Yeah, you know? What about Argo? It's not new. <laughs> we've, we've moved on to other years. We're going to trash. <laughs> no, but it's true. God, what has happened to creativity in Hollywood? Jesus. But um, but yeah, Roger Rabbit would have been nominated. I think it's in the Inside Oscar, which I couldn't even get through because honestly, there's not a lot going on this year. Let's face it. But but that obviously would have won animated feature if they had. They didn't create that category until Beauty and the Beast actually did get a. Mm-hmm. Nomination, best picture nomination, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. and that's when they started paying attention but to it's it. It's pretty neat though that animation is coming on so strong in the in the late eighties because not only did we have Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, which was a, a really a leap forward, but we have three fantastic Japanese classic animation. We have Grave of the Fireflies. There was Akira, and also what was the other one I'm thinking of? My um, neighbor Totoro. My neighbor, my neighbor Totoro, right? Yeah, which are just absolute masterpieces. All three of them, and they all came out the same year. That's uh, Totoro is still really popular. Mm-hmm. Um, God, Miyazaki's a genius. Yes, was absolutely. Then, continues to be. Um, but I'm going to get you, Sucka, was another one of those coming off of Hollywood Shuffle, kind of making fun of Hollywood's tropes, black characters. Mm-hmm. That was the Wayans brothers who then went on to do In Living Color and... Um, then everything kind of just fell apart on that. Like that, that, that narrative just died. That I'm gonna get you suck up. People still kind of refer to it, but, um, but, but, but yeah, it's a sad year because I'm seeing all these really strong actresses in movies that were considered flops, you know. And then there was mm-hmm. like Far North. Jessica Lange was in the movie that Sam Shepard wrote and directed. Mm-hmm. That totally died. A tragic death. You mentioned Tucker, the Man in His Dreams, just in passing. I think that is a really undervalued movie. It's one of my, I can watch that movie again and again. And it was it said so much about the, the way that the corporate mentality can beat down the entrepreneur. Although they say that they're all about the free market and everything, it's it really shows the problems of capitalism when corporations are able to 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 stomp on the little guy who's trying to do something innovative. I think it's an it's a really important film. And in addition to just being a lot of fun, and I like the style of it. I like love the acting. I think it's a it's just a romp. I love it a lot. That's Coppola, right? One of an right? easy half dozen Coppola movies that is underrated because of all the things he did that were masterpieces. He comes along with movies that aren't quite masterpieces and they're sort of dismissed as being inferior when compared to lots of other things, they're fantastic. Mm-hmm, they are. They're little gems. but and they were, They're gems that were probably, like you say, they would be more appreciated if he didn't have those other movies looming so large over them. Right. Yeah. I want to give a shout out to uh, Bull Durham. Yeah. One of the last R-rated, genuinely funny, genuinely sexy romantic comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole, the chemistry between uh, Susan Sarandon and um, Kevin Costner was fantastic. Oh, God. It was just great. Nuke's overthrowing it now. Don't look loose. 
Anything bothering him? He says his uh, chakras are jammed. He's having trouble breathing out of his uh, left eyelid. Left eyelid? Right eyelid. Right eyelid. Where's he at? He's right behind home plate. Don't look. Don't look. Look, he's waving. Hey, he's just your old man. He's as full of shit as anybody. Hey, what's going on? I'm breathing through the wrong fucking eyelid again? No, shut up. Hey, did you guys hear about Jimmy and Millie? Yeah. They got engaged. Can you believe that? Oh, yeah? Well, wait till I tell him she's gone down on half the Carolina leave. Hey, anybody says anything bad about Millie, I break his neck. Excuse me. Guys, I got a game to pitch here. Hey, you guys, don't throw me anything. My girlfriend put a curse on my glove. I'll take the hex off the fucking glove. Give me the glove. Well, then you got to cut the head off a live rooster. What the hell's going on out there? Looks like a convention. Pretty soon they're going to call the roll. <laughs> Get your ass out there and check it out. What the hell's going on out here? Well, Nuke's scared because his eyelids are jammed and his old man's here. We need a live was it a live rooster? We need a live rooster to take the curse off Jose's glove, and nobody seems to know what to get Millie or Jimmy for their wedding present. Is that about right? That's right. We're yeah. dealing with a lot of shit. Okay, well, uh, candlesticks always make a nice gift, and uh, maybe you can find out where she's registered, maybe a place setting or maybe a silverware pound. Okay, let's get two. Here we go. The loose looks in for the sign. Here's the pitch. Ball hit deep in the right field, off the wall. You should be at the game, Annie. Mm-mm, I'm fine. Beautiful night for baseball here in Durham. And as the batter steps in, I can you know, hear the How much time did the, you and Jimmy spend together right, before you proposed? About five hours, I guess. We both just knew. Annie, you think I deserve to wear white? Honey, we all deserve to wear white. I've never seen Crash so angry. 
And frankly, sports fans, he used a certain word that's a no-no with umpires. Crash must have called the guy a cocksucker. Mmm, God, he's so romantic. Really, and Tim Robbins, what a funny character. <laughs> being, Absolutely. you know, mentored by... Um, is that when they met Susan Durandon and Tim yeah. Robinson in that movie? Yeah. yeah. Top of the ninth, two out, one out away from a stunning two-hit shutout, Fort Lelouch. Right on, mate. Don't let up. We own these guys. Dad would love a shutout. Looking for heat. Let me give him the deuce. Oh no, he's shaking off the sides. Big mistake. The son of a bitch is throwing a two-hit shutout. He's shaking me off. You believe that shit? Charlie, here comes the deuce. And when you speak of me, speak well. No, no, serve it up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Give me foul. I told him I was going to throw a deuce, right? Yep. Man, that ball got out of here in a hurry. Anything travels that far out of have a damn stewardess on it, don't you think? Being mentored by Kevin Costner and and then and then I mean what a great character. Annie, uh, Susan Sarandon is a woman who takes on, you know, one baseball you know, player per year, per season that she can, you know, have sex with and mentor and is totally in charge of her own sexuality is really, really smart and funny, um, an, an English teacher. And of course she ends up falling for, for Kevin Costner. How dare you tell me to stay out of my bed? You are messing with my private life. Knock, knock, you know, come in. You're confusing him. Where's like, thank him. you. You're confusing him. You're bending his mind all out and of what? shape. What? You're confusing him. Confusing him? You got him breathing out of the wrong goddamn eyelid. You got him parading around the locker room like a fruit. That is a religious ritual, and it happens to be working, if you don't mind my saying. Wait, 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 wait. Who dresses you? What? Who dresses you? I mean, do you think this is a little excessive for the Carolina League? The road of excess leads to the Palace of Wisdom, William Blake. What, William Blake? William Blake. What, William Blake? William Blake. What do you mean, William Blake? I mean, William Blake. Who are you? I mean, do you do you have a job? I teach part-time at Alamance Junior College. English 101 and beginning composition. You know, having a conversation with you is like a, is, is, is like a Martian talking to a fungo. Oh, cute. That's really cute. You know, just because sometimes you manage to be clever and you have a nice smile does not mean you are not full of shit. 
But I'm full of shit. You're full I'm of full shit. of shit. You are full of shit. chastity was your idea. I know. I'm telling you, I just get your hands out. I never That's told him to stay oh, yes, out of your did. bed. You most certainly I did. never told him to stay out of yes, your bed. Yes, you did. I told him that a player on a streak has to respect the streak. Fine. You know why? Because they don't, they don't happen very often. Right. If you believe you're playing well because you're getting laid or because you're not getting laid or because you wear women's underwear, then you are. And you should know that. Come on, Annie, think of something clever to say, you know? Something full of magic, religion, bullshit. Come on, dazzle me. I said I want you. Stop it. You're scared. Maybe I am. But I still think you should leave. <laughs> okay, well... This is the damnedest season I've ever seen. I mean, the Durham Bulls can't lose and I can't get laid. Um, who's and also, vice versa. And vice versa. And he's, you know, he's kind of a, on his way out, you know. Uh, he's a, what do you call it? He's not He's not a big league player. He's a... Um, he made it to the big leagues briefly and then he's back down in the minor leagues in the last kind of part of his career. So he's kind of a, he's kind of a big fish in a small pond. He's like bigger than everybody else around him, but he never quite realized his dream. Yeah. But Bill Boulderham never gives a single character the short shrift. No. Not one. They they clean up every corner. There's so many wonderful supporting players. Every one of the baseball players has a funny line. You know who they are. You know, the little kid that brings the notes back and forth between Kevin mm-hmm. Costner. <laughs> and then Millie, you know, she's fantastic. And just great acting, great writing, wonderful movie, worth watching over and over and over again. One of the, I don't really like sports movies that much, but this was the one that I, can re- that I really am fond of. I really like it a lot. It's interesting that Kevin Costner did two baseball movies, uh, one right after the other. He did uh, Bull Durham, and then next year he does Field of Dreams. I'm in former lifetimes. Everybody's somebody famous. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> how come nobody ever says they were Joe Schmo? Because it doesn't work that way, you fool. <laughs> I do have gorgeous. You want to dance? It's amazing what a career he had at this point, and how he sort of fell off the table after mm-hmm. the, in the in the nineties. After 
I don't know. I kind of blame uh, Dances with Wolves, but that's just because I never liked that movie. But that's a whole other story that we'll get to when we when we come to I it. Think but it, I, I, it's yeah. fun to go back when Kevin Costner was still hot because oh, yeah. he's within within his range. He wasn't a character. He wasn't an actor with a huge amount of range, but within his wheelhouse, the, the, he was a throwback to one of the old movie stars. I feel. And I this think was you're his right peak about. right now. Was his peak because we? I mean, again, I, I talked about a little bit about No Way Out last time because that was last year. But that is a really tight thriller, and he is, you know, on I fire. I love that movie. That, that movie is yeah. fantastic, and he's that great movie, in there's it. There's a couple of movies, those neo noir movies of the 1980s. We should, we should, we should have been talking more about the resurgence of neo noir in the 1980s with yeah. movies like Body Heat and No Way Out. Oh and, yeah. And uh, what's the other one with Jeff Bridges? Um. Uh, oh. Uh, um, it's the one with Rachel Ward. Yeah, what is the name of that? And this is based on. Uh, That's a sexy uh, movie. Um, yeah. It's not. It seems like it's called No Way Out. What is it? Against it all odds. Like that. Against <laughs> all odds. Yeah. Against all odds. And it was based on a on a, on a 1940s classic, uh, Out of the Past or something. I think. Yeah, that's another one to look to go back to because you think at the time you kind of thought, you know, this is just sort of a you know a sexy hot sexy movie. But when looking back on it now, you're right. It really does pop as a noir, but it also, you know, again, the characters are a lot more interesting than they are today. You know, James Woods isn't that. But we'll talk about that at a different time. Um, let's get to Mississippi Burning because this is going to be the hard one to talk about. Because it is, it, it's it's so, like, on PC. It's one of the movies that people talk about, um, <clears throat> you know, the kind of the white characters saving the black characters and the magical Negro and... Um, there was controversy about it, huge controversy at the time when it first came out. Immediately there was controversy from and people still complaining is. about it. Yeah. Then they still haven't gotten over it, and I'm still not over it either. I'm, I, we may disagree. I, I can think, I can agree with you that it's a skillfully made film, but it really rubs me the wrong way and really gets under my skin, and I find it almost deplorable in a lot of ways because of the reasons that you've just sort of touched on. The fact that, 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 you, that the civil rights movement is told exclusively from the point of the people, the white people who come down to fix all the problems. And all the black people ever get to do in the movie is either just run away or get beat up or get killed. And that's their only function. To me, that's what it seems like to me. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. I wish that that wasn't the case because I, there's so many things I love about that movie. When I, you watch it now, that that is how it comes off. But a lot of white people come off really bad too. They do. Racist they really do. And and that's, that's, and well, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. I watched no, and it it's, again it's a true story. Just to refresh my memory to make sure that I was, that was right about the way that I felt about it, and I couldn't I couldn't tear myself away from it. Although it sort of repulsed me, I'm repulsed. I know. By I it. wish I, that it wasn't that way because I love the stuff with. Um, at first, I love Gene Hackman. The the dude can do no wrong with me. I love him in any movie he's. And I watch Mississippi Burning just to see his performance. But then you see all the great other performances like... um um, Francis McDormand. Francis McDormand and Willem yeah. Dafoe and, and all the yeah. creepy hillbillies. <laughs> I mean, you know. The, the creepy hillbillies, oh, my God. It's like it's like they're monsters. They're, they're troglodytes. That's one thing that almost kind of, that's one thing that kind of I think, I think they went overboard with that Alan Parker. He does that sometimes. He goes to the extremes in order to make a point. He panders to to his upscale audience by showing, by the, he doesn't show any, not a single good-looking person lives in Mississippi except for <laughs> 
She's the only person that you can stand to look at. I love it. No, I know, but that <laughs> there's something about. I mean, it is. It's like um, it's a less. It's a less. It's a less literal version of Django Unchained. I mean, and there isn't a black guy who who redeems everybody, but it is a white fantasy movie because it's. Mm. It is a. You know, I'm gonna beat up these fucking racist assholes. You know, I'm gonna like beat them up. And there's that great scene with Gene Hackman. Two different scenes where he goes and he likes to, you know, beat up the hillbillies and he insults them mm-hmm. and throws them around the room. question for you, Clinton. You don't mind if I call you Clinton, do you? I feel like I know you so well. Where we have it, on the night of the murders, you made a short speech as the bulldozer buried the kids in the dam. How does Lester tell her? Mississippi would be proud of you. You've struck a blow for the white man. <laughs> Is that what you said, Clinton? Hmm. Is that what you said? Now, it must have been you, because Clayton Townley and Ray Stuckey, they were too smart to be there. You're too stupid to think anybody remember what you had to say. Little Lester, he got a good memory. (laughs) I'm sorry. I haven't done this for a long time. Did you make a speech the night that you beat up your wife, Clinton? Huh? Did you? Did you strike a blow for the white man that night? Huh? Get out of there. You got a stupid smile, you know that, pal? Can you see it? Huh? Come on! You smile when the bulldozer ran over the black kid's body? Get you out! Get out! Did you smile when the bodies were covered over? Did you? Did you smile that same stupid smile? Huh? Did you? You. The mistake that the movie makes is that all the black characters are completely passive. Absolutely right. You know? That's so true. And that and, is and that you really side. feel for them, and you and you hate to see what's happening to them, but they don't take any active participation in their own, in 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 in, in, in even trying to to assist the FBI agents. They don't even want to help. Right, you know? and partly they could. could they, they're really afraid. I know they're time, afraid. They're fearful. You know? fearful. They make a. Good, they make that point very clear. The reasons they that they don't help, but I don't think that that's the way it was, and I don't think that black people at the time in the 1980s felt that way either. I felt like that they that they were sort yeah. of offended by it. There are some characters like the, there's the, the the little son who. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he stands great. up, and then yeah. there's the the guy who tortures the the one Ku Klux Klan guy. But you know, can I say something about that though? That, that you, when that scene is shown, you don't you're not aware of who who that guy is. You just see this black guy who comes in to torture the white guy in order to get the information. And what he's doing, he's using the KKK tactics against. Uh, 
someone who's with the KKK, so it makes him no better than them. He's using the same terroristic tactics as the KKK, and it makes him look really threatening. Like, here's this big, threatening black guy who's come down yeah. to, like, threaten to cut a white guy's balls off. And you'd find out later that he's an FBI agent. But that's right. a fallacy because in 1964, there were no black FBI agents. There was not a single black FBI agent. Well, I think so that, you know, the, the, uh, Ben Affleck, not to keep going back to Argo, <laughs> but Ben Affleck makes Why the not? same mistake in, in Argo because the, the hostages are all passive like that. They're passive that's characters. True. And yeah. that makes for, to me, a really weak story ultimately. And I, I think, I mean, hindsight is twenty they They're telling the movie from a white perspective and mm-hmm. they think they're being, you know, rescuers and everything. And I get all that. I totally get it. I, I think it's a story worth telling, but I think it's only really a story for white people, not really a mm-hmm. story it, it for, really, you know. It's really going to make white people feel good about what we did to exactly. save the black people with civil rights. When right. I think there's a lot, the story's a lot more complex than that. And, and what bugs me about the story so much is that they used an actual tragedy. They used an actual tragedy with the names of the real people. These All these people really existed, and they don't even bother to change the names. But then they fictionalize it, and they change it all around and add this little romance between Gene Hackman and Francis McDormand, which did not happen in real life. The informant who helped him to help the FBI discover the truth of what happened that night was a paid informant they, they paid some guy in the in the kkk thirty thousand dollars in order to have him turn on his repulsive buddies there was no wife that that, that broke down you know that's all just a romantic sort of white yeah. fantasy i know and, and again to me it would be a, a a movie and it is i have to confess it is a movie i really like because not like but enjoy mm. watching because i think that the acting is so good you know and i do gene hackman in particular um, but I like the scene where he... I just like watching Gene Hackman lose his shit. <laughs> That's a tough role that he plays, it. you know, because in order to get on the inside, in order to be able to associate and get on the inside with these with these rednecks, he has to act like a redneck himself. Mm. And he, he, it's, a, it's a really fine line to have to walk in order to have to tell those, those disgusting jokes and with a smile on his face that makes you see that he knows that he doesn't buy into it. I know. That's, I just love how, you know, you, they, these people crawled out of a sore, Mr. Ward. <laughs> so we got to be in the gutter to catch them. <laughs> yeah. It's like watching Unforgiven is the same thing. Unforgiven, I just watched the other day because I got our Oscar years mixed up. And um, I thought, I was sitting there watching uh, um, Unforgiven, and Michael says to me, this isn't 1988. I was like, oh, it's not? So, but that's another movie where it's a good movie. It's well-written. We could talk about it when we get to it. But but, but it's just, to me, it's all about Gene Hackman, just to watch him lose his The thing is, what we've noticed about, and it continues to this day, I think, that movies that deal with, with black people, um, they have to be. They're they're damned if they do, and they're they're damned if they don't. They have to be all things to all people. Yeah. When the sad fact is, is that the power structure in Hollywood is predominantly white. So any of these movies that get made that anybody's going to see are going to be made by white people. And you can go the Steven Spielberg route, where he genuinely tries to tell a black story in the best way that he can, and he's criticized for it because he's a white dude doing it. Or you can go the Alan Parker route, and you can tell a black story, but through the perspective. Of of white people right. and he gets criticized for that so they really they can't win so either you can you can either throw out all movies about black people and less black people make them or you can try to accept the movies on their own terms and and not criticize them for the fact that there aren't more movies that are that are more well-rounded and better 
if I that agree. makes any it, sense. It does, absolutely. And if the Academy membership now is 85% white, imagine what it was 30 years ago. It must right. have been close to 90 or 95% white. And in order for to get a movie nominated by the Academy, you have to show them a movie that they can identify with. They have to see characters that they can identify with and think that that would do the same thing if I were in that person's shoes that I'm seeing on screen. And they're just not, they just have never been very good. White, white members of the Academy have never been very good at, at identifying with black characters. Right. But right. And there's no, I mean, the only thing that happens if, if this movie, you know, doesn't get made is that, is that, um, People don't talk about civil rights. It's just not mm-hmm. talked about. Yeah. A and B, um, less black people get to act in movies. That's the other right. problem. Right. Like after Color Purple happened, you know, Steven Spielberg didn't pay the price for that. Black actors in Hollywood paid the price because right. no less yes. movies about black characters will get made because of that. Because of the, the yeah, the narrative critics. isn't that we, nobody wants to see a Steven Spielberg movie. The narrative is that nobody wants to see a movie about black people. Right, and there and that I, was the same with the Help. It was the exact same thing with the Help. If there had been no black characters in the Help. Um, people would complain about it less, although the same—that's what happened with Lincoln. There weren't enough black characters in Lincoln. That's so true. Suddenly- I, I can sort of I can be I can be all up I can be on my high horse about saying that I don't I don't like the idea that they make a movie about the civil rights tra- a real life civil rights tragedy and turn it into a dirty Harry movie, but at the <laughs> same time people are who go, who are going to turn in tune in to watch a dirty Harry movie are going to learn something about the civil rights movement that they didn't know before. And I should be clear that when I'm when I'm sounding critical about um, people's reactions to movies that aren't perfect that are about black people, I re- I reacted the same way to The Help, a movie that I still can't stand, and yet here I am arguing that movies like that deserve better than they get because it's not their fault that that they are what they are in a certain way. The one similarity that I can see, one thing that one thing that I did sort of feel. Uh, ambivalent about the help is that it shows the white people as so extremely openly, overtly racist that white people can now can look at it and say, well, look how far we've come. That's right. the same thing that they could say about Mississippi burning. Right. They can look at those people in Mississippi and they can say, well, we're not like that now. We're not like, I was never like that. But that's that's the problem in showing white people as total monsters because racism doesn't always exhibit it, doesn't always manifest itself in monsters. Well, and besides, look at how little has changed out there in Mississippi. That's I mean, right. you know, yeah. this kind of Suppression, you know, that, and it was all about voter suppression. The whole story the about Butler the Butler is like the, movie, yeah, is yeah. like the and first that's movie still going since, on today. That's the news yeah. item today is the voter suppression thing and in the, North Carolina. The, and honestly, the Butler is the first movie since Mississippi Burning to really, really tell that that talk about that time in history, and they do it from the he does it Lee Daniels from the perspective of mm-hmm. black characters. So they, mm-hmm. people can't make that same criticism right. of this because he's but he's telling the same kind of thing that happened back in the 60s when the civil rights workers were mm-hmm. killed and mm-hmm. nobody did mm-hmm. a goddamn mm-hmm. thing about it. Our government certainly didn't. And that that is the part of Mississippi burning, actually the part of the butler that he nails, that Lee Daniels nails, but it, there's a little bit of it in Mississippi burning, which is how little we actually did about it. Right. You know? uh-huh. And yeah. how little we're doing about it now. Um, and how yeah. we leave it up to the states, and there's really not only did we not do anything about it, but we almost are unable to do anything about it. The federal government seems like it has its hands tied and able to inter- and able to intercede with what these states are doing. 
that's the scary thing is that that's how we got into the mess in the first place by allowing states to do what they wanted to do Mm -hmm. and we're swinging back towards that that's the that's the driving mantra of the republican party states Mm -hmm. rights and allowing states to make their own rules and that's that's when bad crap like this happens. They mention yeah. that again and again in Mississippi burning. There's several different lines when those Mississippi people say, we don't care what the rest of America doing or is doing or what they think of us. You're in Mississippi now, boy. Yeah, and the, and the KKK are infiltrated in the government, and they're the law enforcement. It's all, right. you know, one big group. And, you know, if you look at the population of Mississippi now and Arkansas and, and the deep south where voter suppression mm-hmm. is really hardcore, where all those racist tweets were coming out against Obama on election night, Mm-hmm. Um, we're all traced back to that same region, the Red Belt, you know, where a lot of people are on food stamps, a lot of white people on food stamps, a lot of Republicans, a lot of racists, and there's a huge black population, and most of them do not vote. And one of the things that happened during the Mississippi burning era was that they weren't allowed to vote, you know, because they, they gave them all sorts of ridiculous tests, and then they wouldn't give them their, their card to vote. So they couldn't do anything because they couldn't even sit on juries if they weren't registered to vote. Right, so they had no so no power in laws. government whatsoever. They yeah. had no, they had no, they had no role in government. They right. were not allowed to have any. And that that's only going to get worse now. It was bad enough as it was. I think in the '60s and maybe late '50s and early '60s, there was what there was the there was the migration of black people. They just got fed. They couldn't handle it anymore. They didn't want to deal with that in the South anymore, so they moved north. But now, in, in the past 30 years, they've, there's been a, a, a migration of black families back to the South, trying to instead of running from the problem or, or getting not running from the problem, but trying to escape from the problem to be to live a more peaceful life someplace else. Now they're going back to their roots to fix the problem. And we should say that um, Ryan lives. I live in the South. I live in Kentucky. It's a border state. You know, it's, yeah. not, it's on the border of Indiana, so it's not it's like not deep as bad South, as, but I do see plenty as, of it. And, yeah. I, and I saw the butler this weekend in Nashville. I went all the way down to Nashville, with it like, and the audience was more than half black that I, in the theater where oh, I saw no it. Oh, no kidding. It, it was how, a fantastic was... experience. Oh, wow. Really beautiful, wonderful experience. What was it see, like? Tell me about uh, it a little just bit. The, the, at the end of the movie, the, the, the long applause and the people crying. People crying oh. all around me, and me crying, you know, and oh. me sitting between my two black friends, and I'm crying. I'm crying more than I'm crying, and they're not. Oh. You know, it was great, and it was really great to see the response down there. Because you know, Nashville is not, even though it's in the South. I lo- I was wondering about, gosh, there's so many black people in this theater. Is Nashville really that that mixed? You know, the demographics. So I looked it up, and Nashville is 90% white, 87% white people, and only about 10% black. So it's just that the black audience really turned out for this movie, and this was in a suburban. Theater on the outskirts of is a real cinema on the outskirts of Nashville. It's not in an up, really upscale neighborhood, and um, it was uh, it was just a really wonderful experience. It's oh, great. I mean, I, I, you know, a little annoyed with the critics, obviously, again, yet again, because they gave Forrest Gump a total pass, and you know, the Butler is kind of the Forrest Gump for African Americans in a way. You know, it, it takes the same sort of liberties with the narrative, and you know. Um, it is kind of a, a story that's not supposed to be really particularly taken literally. This is exactly what happened. That's not really what the butler's about. You're not supposed to be watching that and going, oh, that didn't happen. That He doesn't look like Nixon or, you know. Mm. it's And it's, you know, obviously Forrest Gump was, was you know, succeeded on its special effects. That was part of the gimmick. But that's a story for white boomers to sort mm-hmm. of come of age and appreciate whatever, blah, blah, blah. But... You know, the butler is is uh, the same kind of story, but just not for, you know, the the fifty-ish white boomer. 
you know. Right. That's and that's the thing about the movies of 1988 too. It's like so many. It's like a cliche now to say white people's problems movie. That wasn't a term that was probably used back in the 1980s. I think of those movies as like uh, Accidental Tourist and the Woody Allen movies and The Big Chill as being sort of like yuppie angst movies. There was a lot of that going on, and now we call that white the white people's problems. But those are all of the. That's what all of the movies were about, except for Mississippi Burning. And so, really, you have to give Mississippi Burning credit for at least going there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, to me, it's all good. I, you know, the criticism all it serves to do is take those stories out of circulation. Nobody hears mm-hmm. about them anymore. Right. So I think it's better to have them in and have people talk about them. And it's not perfect. And the characters, the black characters are kind of the wall of quiet black people, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, but um, that have no identity except to just stand there and look. <laughs> but you certainly do feel your heart goes out to all of them. They managed to do so much with those small roles with, with their expressions and their body language and everything. It's remarkable, really, that they were able to overcome the limitations of the movie in order to, to, to be such a strong presence. Yeah, it's a really film. hard. Some of those scenes in Mississippi Burning, I actually have to fast forward because they're too hard to watch. It's, in, it's intensely. It's, it's, I wasn't kidding when I said it's, it, it plays like a Dirty Harry movie. It's a suspense cop thriller. It's like a. It's really a, almost like a Charles Bronson movie or something. The music and the editing and the action scenes and everything. It's really. It's really like that, and so it, it grabs you by the throat for sure. Yeah, and you know they couldn't really let black. Obviously, you saw what happens when a black civil rights worker comes in. So, really, mm-hmm. white people had to be in there doing that. Yeah, they, there's absolutely. no way they could have if they weren't white. Um, so that that's a, kind of a logical conclusion as to why you know it was only the whites and the blacks. It just somehow in the execution of it, it comes out like it's so it's so neatly divided. You know, it wouldn't have bothered me so much if it wasn't a true story, and that I didn't think that if I didn't if I wasn't aware of how fast and loose they played with so many of the facts in order to actually diminish the role that black people played and mm. from the real story, and yeah. that they. Uh, just that bothers me more than anything. If you're going to make a, that's fine. If you want to make a movie like that, but make it purely fiction. Make it all fiction. Make all of the characters. Invent them all. You know, from scratch. Don't don't base it on the reality of a real tragedy where actual real people, you know, sacrifice their lives. That's that's a really good point. It is a really good point. Um, but you know that shit did go down. That kind of stuff mm-hmm. happened all yeah. the time back then. Um, is it possible that Michelle Pfeiffer? was in three movies that year. She was in Married to the Mob, Dangerous Liaisons, and Tequila Sunrise all in one year. Well, Tequila Sunrise is, is one of those movies that's in the same vein as No Way Out and, and uh, the other one we talked about that I've forgotten the name of already. Yeah, it's but a lot better it, than, than it got credit for at the time. Yeah. It's a beautiful movie, too, and all the characters are so funny in it. It's Robert Town wrote that. Oh, yeah, I'd have forgotten about that. You're right, yeah. Yeah, Robert Town wrote it. Did he direct it also? Hmm. I can't mm-hmm. remember who directed No Way Out. It's, I mean, um, Tequila Sunrise. But that's that's one I watch over and over and over again, too. I love that movie. Uh, and I just like it because, you know, they made a big deal about it. So Robert Town's one of those guys he, can never get, he could never get out from under Chinatown. I mean, when you write one of the greatest screenplays of all time... Like Orson Welles, or you know. Well, I have to say that not every writer can can jump can make that jump to director, and they shouldn't all try. I mean, uh, everyone 
you know, interestingly enough, there's a guy named Jack Matthews who wrote for the L.A. Times in yeah. 1988, and he made predictions for the following year of Oscars, and he said that The Two Jakes was a shoe-in for Best Picture. Oh, my The God. Two Jakes, because it was he thought it was going to be based on Chinatown, and it's Robert Town again, and so yes, surely it's going to be nominated. He also thought that Meryl Streep was a shoe-in for She-Devil. Jack Matthews said that in the L.A. Times the, the day after the 1989 Oscars. He said, watch out for Meryl Streep next year and then the She-Devil. Oh. Because even back then they were thinking, whatever Meryl Streep does, automatic nomination. No matter yeah. if it turns out to be the worst movie she ever made. Yeah, that What's was interesting a is how little the pre, pre-Oscar year thinking has changed. It, it's, it's still the same. You, people mm-hmm. latch onto the same stars and the same types of projects, and they, 90% of them are wrong. It's just mm-hmm. exploded into a huge industry, but it's the, the sentiment right. is the same. Um, this was also the year of, um, um, well, I mean, we should say Married to the Mob was a big deal because that was the beginning of Jonathan Demme's, you know, trajectory. Uh, but he made, um, did he make Melvin and Howard before that? That yeah. and something wild. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. So, but but this, he was, was, yeah. this was his first really big mainstream hit. Yeah. And then there's Die Hard. Which was an iconic film of the time, you know. People still remember that. Die Hard has aged really well too. Die Hard has aged really well. I because mean, it's, of it's Alan out. Rickman. That's why. <laughs> What's that? Because of Alan Rickman. Yeah. He's yeah. the reason. Snape. Yeah. <laughs> Snape. I was trying to explain Alan Rickman to Emma because I totally forgot about Harry Potter, and uh-huh. I was talking about Alan because. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch does a really great impression of Alan Rickman, and I was like, "Oh, Emma, do you know who Alan Rickman is?" She's like, "Mom, Snape." I was like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah right." <laughs> of course, <laughs> <He's> Snape. <laughs> he's been he's been a classic villain to two, two generations. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. It's kind of funny about a, a Die Hard that the two that you've got that he, that um, what's his name. Um, Bruce Willis comes to L.A. and he finds that Japanese have invaded, and the and the, then the other villain is German. So he's fighting World War II all over again against the <laughs> Japanese and the Germans. Um, and you know the following year after this, speaking of Michelle Pfeiffer, she will she will come up with uh, fabulous Baker Boys fabulous and then Baker lose Boys. to mm-hmm. Jessica mm-hmm. Tanny. That was going to be her big Oscar year. So it's totally like you know the bases are loaded, you know, and then somebody comes up to bat because she gets all these. She does three movies this year and shows her diversity and her versatility. She gets an Oscar nomination for one of them, and she comes up with fabulous Baker Boys. Everybody thought she was going to win for that, mm-hmm. um, but she didn't. Yeah, I found this Jack Matthews quote where he's predicting a year in advance, trying to predict a year in advance the following year's Oscars, and he's predicting that um, Marlon Brando will be nominated for A Dry White Season, Paul Newman in Blaze, Colin Firth in Valmont, and he's in, for Best Picture, he's predicting um, The Two Jakes, uh, In Country, Valmont, and he says, but everybody needs to just step aside because Dick Tracy's going to sweep. <laughs> We should post that article. <laughs> and then he says, he goes on to say, predicting next year's nominees is not the strain that it seems to be. It's like saying it was a, a no-brainer. Oh, my so, God. Uh, you know, he's terrible. The thing is, is that none of those at the time sounded like terrible picks. They all sound reasonable. It's only in hindsight that you realize that he was basically over for whatever. He, he was wrong about everything. That's the world's of worst Oscar. were even nominated, much less won. World's worst Oscar blogger right there. <laughs> 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 that is so funny. <laughs> Poor Jack Matthews. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I'm looking. Oscar, Oscar punditry 1989. Oh, God, that's so funny. 
Um, this year was sort of uh, sort of launched Tom Hanks too. I mean, he had been in a lot of crummy movies except for Splash up to that point, and Big really kind of launched him and sort of began. Uh, not surprising that it was sort of the beginning for Jonathan Demme as well. Um, sort of launched Tom Hanks as a, as a credible Oscar candidate, and he would go on to win several times. But what's interesting to me is that I think his performance in Big is better than anything that he did after it. <laughs> I know nobody will agree with that, but no, his, I love that his movie. portrayal yeah. as a little kid is is great. He is big. no, and he was that was him at his prime. You know, yeah. I mean, he's great, and I think he's excellent. And maybe his best performance is actually in Philadelphia, but um, but he's he's great in Forrest Gump too, and he's great in um, Big. He's just a wonderful actor, Tom Tom Hanks. I'm sad big, to see that he's Big gone. tapped into his career as a comedian more than the other films did, and that's why I think probably why it appeals to me because it it bridges his comedian persona with with his dramatic persona in a way that he rarely was able to do. It was either it was usually either one or the other. Big must have really been uh, uh, an eye-opener to people, too, because no one expected him to be capable of a movie like that and the exactly. movies that, that followed it immediately. Now you see Tom Hanks. Every time you see his name, you expect him to be in, a, in, a, in, a, in an Oscar contender. It's almost yeah. Oscar baity. And so, I think people forget and, that he was a comedian before that. Yeah, right, exactly. That's what, he, um, and, and I hate to say this, you guys, but that, that we figured it out. We finally dug down and figured it out that this is the year that it all ended for women in the best picture race. Cause I keep going forward and, but for every once in a while for a piano, the piano or, mm-hmm. um, sounds of the lambs or the English patient, you know, for the most part, they're all male protagonists that, that end up in the best picture race. And it seems and like the turning point was that year because all those strong actresses took movies that ultimately failed and it, it ne- Hollywood never got back on track with, with women in the lead. It's, that's the thing. Because the, because the movies didn't succeed, uh, Hollywood stopped making movies about women and so those roles, those roles dried up. The roles dried up then and so the movies dried up. Along with that, our, all of our ovaries. Oh, God. <laughs> but it just, they stopped being the thing, you know, and from then mm-hmm. on it was like the movie to get Best Picture, it had to be, you know, male-led, male-driven, you know, um, directed by so, men. It's sort of sad to see that happen. How sad, very sad. And I the, wonder which came first, though, the, the Oscar shift or the box office shift or whether they happened at the same time. It looks like they happened right around now, you know, like I said, with all those those box office women, those strong, the only one who, who seemed to evade that was um julia roberts and you know even she couldn't she could only really bring one i don't think she ever brought a movie except for aaron brockovich to best picture nomination mm-hmm. uh, and she was a totally different kind of actress than the kinds of actresses that we were dealing with yes. in the 70s and the 80s and she is really where it all changed by the way julia roberts i, I was gonna like write something about that because when julia roberts came along like you're saying it, it it took away the the kind of the power of people like deborah winger you know, mm-hmm. Meryl Streep, all the really, well, not Meryl Streep necessarily, but, you know, all the strong character actresses that were that were given credit and had box office clout because of their experience and their talent, as opposed to just their charisma and their charm. Yeah, I, I don't want to take anything away from her because I've always really liked her and everything that she's done just about, but she gets by more on wattage and charm than somebody like Streep, who it's, it's she muscles through her performances and and other actors of that kind like Deborah Winger and even Sally Field and all of the great actresses that we've been dealing with were all sort of quirky character actors in a certain way and they weren't necessarily they weren't necessarily 
rooted in, in, in charm and charisma. Even though they all had that, it wasn't the predominating factor. Yeah, and you could build a chart, which I'll probably do at some point, measuring when Best Picture stopped being films about women and started being films about men, and it's right around this time. And that's because it may have something to do too with the fact that maybe around the mid '80s, women stopped going to see the movies that were made for women. First, for whatever reason, because either because of the home entertainment industry was made it so much easier to stay home with the family, but women didn't go out in droves to to, to make women's pictures as successful as they had formerly done. Well, what made, was happening in the uh, '80s and '90s? It was it was yuppie yuppie dumb. Mm-hmm. It was women working, and they're probably just too fucking tired after working mm-hmm. and taking yeah, care of the for kids. Sure. You know. Yeah. And, and even even if the women did go to turn out to see movies that were made for them, it was the movies that were made for uh, men in their 20s and teenage boys that were really making all the money. And so that's what studios decided they wanted to focus on. Right, and then we, now women are mm-hmm. going, but they're taking their kids. So you have all the yeah. family entertainment driving the mm-hmm. box office. Yeah. Um, but you'll now you'll start to see, if you just the way you can tell is just look at the best actress race. Mm-hmm. And it's always... Up to and including now, it's it's almost always the movies that aren't nominated that they're in that they have to search high and low for these parts, you know, that are that they can take that are good parts, but they're not parts that drive the box office or you know um, get nominated for for Oscar. It's especially unfortunate for Glenn Close because I think this year in Dangerous Liaisons is probably her, her the closest she ever came to winning an Oscar and maybe will be the closest she ever comes. That was like her last great shot at it. And because, like you have said before, she's just not the type of woman who takes the kind who gets the kind of roles or who even seeks out this type of roles that that, that the Oscars are looking for. Right. And, and she's, because she's not pretty enough. And once it was mm, about Julia Roberts, I didn't Roberts, want to say that. But <laughs> well, you're right. Looks mm, and sex of Julia mm, Roberts is really yeah, the mm. the uh, precursor to Jennifer Lawrence, another one of our mm-hmm. favorite. Discuss- right. <laughs> but you know, that's that's Jennifer Lawrence. She paved the way mm. for that. And 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 now, as as you see, because we've gone through it, you see that the younger actresses, they get younger, they get prettier, they get hotter. They're- yeah, it's not only Jennifer Lawrence. It's Natalie Portman. It's Marion Cotillard. It's like you know, it's not as if the, any of the actresses have won recently are hard to look at right and and the era we just came through the 70s it was a different kind of thing i mean when you had like ellen burston you know driving box office and and you know deborah winger you had unconventional looking women where it wasn't necessarily about looks because it was um i mean sure they're actors so they have to have that you know thing about them that watchability Mm -hmm. but it wasn't necessarily they all would look like models which is how it is now Mm mm-hmm and they have to be young now, too. Streep was into her 30s by the time she really started to click with box office and awards. Yeah, right. That's unheard. That's almost unheard of now. They're done by then. Well, the young generation, they're, they're helping, you know, the, the Jennifer Lawrence fans and the Kristen Stewart fans, they're turning up. You know, the young women are turning up and paying t- money to see these movies. If only the movies could get better. And Jodie Foster, in fact, was was I probably only around 23 or 24 when she made The Accused. And so she may have been one of the first, along with, with Cher maybe, who was one of the first uh, young hotties to, to take Best best Actress, is, is the, 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 the trend when that began. Right. Well, I've looked back. I did like a, a, a scope of age. You can look on Wikipedia, and a lot of really young actresses did win Oscars. You know, oh, yeah, I'm looking back. Like Grace so Kelly. I, I think yeah. Grace Kelly, but they weren't as young as Jennifer Lawrence. I think she, mm. she she's yeah. the youngest, isn't she, I think? I think I think so. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I'll have to check. Um, Didn't we determine that Jennifer Jones or somebody was the same age, and, and they're both the youngest? 
Youngest Best Actress winner. Okay, here we go. List of oldest and youngest. Um, and I don't even really think that, like her her youth doesn't bother me as much as her. And I, as as the part, I think she's a really good actress. You know, mm-hmm. she was excellent in Winter's Bone, and she's she's great in, in Hunger Games and. Marley Madden, Marley Madden Marley was Madden. the youngest best actress. She's Jennifer Lawrence is the second youngest. And Marley Madden was only 21, and Jennifer right. Lawrence is 22 now. Yeah, I guess what bothers me more a little bit is that Jennifer Lawrence's part is such a is such a poor excuse for a great part compared to what we're used to seeing with best mm-hmm. actress, the kind of uh, role the, you need, which is like a woman who the whole film is about her and she's just in, that Jennifer Lawrence is that's more of a supporting part. Mm-hmm. Other young actresses, I, I have the list down in front of me. Other young actresses that have won over the years have been Joan Fontaine and Audrey Hepburn and Julie Christie, Grace Kelly, Hilary Swank, and Vivian Lee. They all won when they were younger than 25. Wow. So, so that goes way back, all the way back to, well, yeah. Vivian Lee was 26 when she won for Gone with the Wind. But that's, uh, and, and uh, yeah, Audrey Hepburn was 24. So this has been, it's been, it hasn't been unheard of throughout Oscar history. No, but compare. Vivian Lee and Gone with the Wind to Jennifer Lawrence. No, oh my God, you cannot compare. There's no comparison. It's like Julie a different Christie thing altogether. They're different species. Audrey Hepburn and Roman Holiday. Mm. I mean, she's 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 charming and cute, just like Jennifer Lawrence is, and that that might be your best comparison there is Audrey Hepburn and mm. Roman. Yeah, except that the whole movie Roman Holiday is built entirely around Audrey Hepburn, and that she's on she's in almost every scene of the movie. Right. Whereas Jennifer Lawrence is, like I said, a supporting character in in Silver Linings. And Hillary Swank. Well, Audrey's more genuinely soulful than Jennifer Lawrence is at this point in her life. Yeah. Right. So not to rag, always be ragging on Jennifer Lawrence. It's not her <laughs> fault that all the other parts are so weak that. Right. That's the thing. It's not as if she is her fault that that there were no other that she doesn't have any competition. Yeah, that's just. And it's not her fault at all that the part that she played was written as a big piece of shit, and that she actually <laughs> made it. She, in a sense, deserves the award that she got because she made that part much more than it should have been. As she it, always does. Much more than it was on the page. That's true. I'll and that's her thing. That. You know, yeah. she she's always does that. Like she's very very talented in front of the camera. And she's always the best thing about every movie she's in. Somehow, inexplicably. Mm-hmm. I've watched her, mm-hmm. and maybe she plays herself, maybe she plays the same part every time, but however you slice it, it comes out that she's really good. If, if you choose the right roles, you can play yourself and you can get away with that. You know, and and it's not a big problem for me. I don't like to see actors playing themselves if they try to, if, if they come up, if, they always, if it always looks like I don't even can't think of anybody's name or family. Like maybe Al Pacino. You can never get away from the fact that it's Al Pacino, no matter who he's playing. Like I can't imagine Al Pacino as Napoleon. Wasn't he set to play Napoleon at one time? To me, that's ridiculous. I can't even picture him as that. You know, right. because and he's I, just always going to be too much Al Pacino. I'll probably never get over the fact that she won for Silver Linings and not for Winter's Bone. It's just, just something I have mm. to live with. That's <laughs> part of the bad thing, and the other part of the bad thing for me, of course, is you know, is that you, we you know how much I adore Emmanuel Riva in that. Yeah. In, in more and how how much I think that was just such a terrible thing that she was passed over. It's, it's a shame, and I feel like that's because probably not a lot of people in the academy even watched it more. I, why would they? You know, they yeah. didn't. They didn't yeah. watch it. There's no way they would. You think that like Sarah Jessica Parker's going to sit down and watch? <laughs> and then the academy members who can't even get out of bed at home they're not going to watch it that's not the, that's not the first thing they're going to want to watch <laughs> the bedridden ones 
<laughs> yeah, oh, I think God. the typical Academy member probably would strike a little too close to home for most of them. <laughs> you guys are giving me an orgasm headache by making me laugh. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I think that's all we can do because I've got to get out of here. i got to get okay. up to that party and... But it's been nice talking with you guys, and we'll be back for another stunning year of... Well, actually, this is our last... No, we have one more year of the 80s, and then we head into the 90s. It's pretty grim this there, too. This is one cusp of the 90s, because I think even though Driving Miss Daisy was made in 1989, the awards were held in 1990, so we're right on the edge of the decade now. And yeah. so it's not as if we have a whole lot to look forward to next month, next week, either. <laughs> it's a depressing year. I know. <laughs> I All thought right. we did a good job with this year, which didn't, on the surface, have much to offer, but I thought we gave it a good workout. I think so, too. It was a good one. It's going to require very little editing, that's for sure. Good. That's good news. Yeah. Wish your dad a happy birthday for me so he can say, Craig who? You could come if you want. You want to come? That's not going to happen. All right. <laughs> Thanks for asking, though. Yeah. Happy, happy birthday. Have a fun party tonight. All right. Thanks, you guys. Have a good, good night. night. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.